Hi, and welcome to this first State of the World podcast. My name is Igor Lys, and together with Maxime Mathias, Oliver Thompson, and Fleury Parensage, we have created State of the World, a brand for events, podcasts, and articles about, well, the state of the world. We're focusing on four key domains, politics, economy and business, culture, and society. As we're planning to run an online panel discussion with a representative of each of these four domains, we want to introduce them. Today, for this first political interview, I will be talking to Tavi Rivas, former Prime Minister of Estonia, member of Estonian Parliament, and one of the great proponents of the progress in governance. Tavi was the youngest head of state of the European Union when he was in office from 2014 to 2016, and today he is helping both his own country and states worldwide to better ensure an efficient digital transition. In today's world, it seems to be one of the most important challenges. Hello, Tavi. Hi. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Um, I'm going to go straight with this uh, general question in line with uh, the brand of the event that we're thinking about. What do you think is the state of the world today? Well, I believe the world is experimenting or experiencing something that it has never seen before, at least during our times. Uh, first of all, it is a um, uh, very, very serious uh, health crisis, but uh, increasingly it is um, a crisis of, um, of economic uh, development, uh, trade, uh, globalization, and, and many, many other things that we can't even uh, directly see being linked with this uh, direct uh, health crisis. So I think it's fair to say that uh, uh, we are still, as, as a society, we are still in a shock and, and, uh, and it's new to, to all of us. And you as a former head of state, you have a special particular experience in having the, the whole picture in front of you. Uh, how do you evaluate the current challenge from this perspective? The, as you say, it's also the obviously the health part, the economic part, I think the societal, cultural part, everything, everything is going to be impacted. From your uh, experience in current work, how do you think, is this challenge, um, are, are we good enough for this challenge as, as a society? Well, as they say that uh, no two crises are exactly alike, and, and I think uh, our societies uh, uh, have been preparing for all sorts of um, difficulties, crises. Uh, uh, you know, some of our uh, societies have uh, prepared uh, for um, you know, security uh, and defense. Uh, uh, some of us have uh, been uh, uh, looking wider at also all sorts of hybrid threats, but I, I think it's fair to say that um, most of the Western world uh, was not prepared for this kind of shock, and uh, I think it's um, it's hard to blame anyone because uh, this is something that uh, our eyes have never seen before, and and it has been very difficult to be ready for that, and and thus I I do understand the initial. Uh, reactions uh, where countries uh, sometimes act, acted very uh, separately, uh, not coordinating much. Uh, whereas uh, now, when we have uh, 
seen it already for uh, for weeks or even months it uh, would be um, very very logical to coordinate much more uh, today uh, it's not anymore a question of uh, minutes or hours uh, today we are talking about uh, how to uh, come out of it how to um, how to uh, get back our lives as as uh, societies and this is something uh, that uh, we should uh, do together uh, i think if we look at the last uh, uh, five or ten biggest crises uh, uh, the European Union countries have been always stronger when they have managed to act together and, and coordinate their efforts. Uh, you mentioned that um, we were probably being prepared for the wrong kind of threats. Well, not the wrong, but like the, the, the ones that are in the end doing less damage than the COVID crisis. Can we blame politicians for this, uh, that they are obsessed with investing into uh, military um, protection into um, all kind of warfare and who were kind of in a certain sense discarding all this uh, warnings about the pandemics and epidemics uh, I'm thinking about this Bill Gates video which is very popular from four years ago but also some scientific articles who were precisely describing the potential uh, coronavirus crisis uh, these articles date from 10-13 years ago do you think we can blame kind of politicians for this militaristic choice and in a certain sense ignoring the um, the health crisis well i think it's uh, in a way it's the opposite i i do think that we should uh, forget about the uh, military threat uh, as well and, and uh, coming from a country that uh, until uh, 30 years ago uh, was occupied for um, for uh, five decades uh, uh, it, it's kind of natural that uh, that in my country uh, we take uh, national defense and, and sovereignty not for granted, but we we take it very very seriously. And and I think it's it's for the rest of um, uh, Europe and and then Western world as such uh, also important uh, to be certain that um, in times of whatever kind of military threats, be it conventional, be it hybrid, be it uh, cyber be it, um, be it uh, uh, corruption uh, at the state level or, or be, it, uh, uh, be it propaganda that uh, undermines the societies. Uh, we need to prepare for these kind of things as well. And, and also, just like uh, with any other crisis, we are stronger when we act together. So, so I don't think that, uh, that we have been too prepared for um, for. Uh, uh, military crisis and, and even even in this century in Europe we have seen several cases when uh, when uh, countries have been uh, attacked or, or or partly occupied so so I think this is uh, continuously very very serious topic as well uh, but um, I think what uh, yeah, this particular COVID crisis is um, opening our eyes for is that uh, we need to be resilient in many many ways and uh, lots of countries have taken uh, uh, their security policy uh, to be very comprehensive, to be dealing with all sorts of uh, modern threats. Uh, uh, cyber, of course, being uh, one of the main kind of new threats uh, that has emerged, and, and all countries have 
more or less uh, trying to be prepared for this. Uh, now uh, we probably understand that uh, that the list of uh, those kind of hybrid threats is um, is not uh, infinite, or, or there, there can be uh, shocks coming from places where we are not expecting. So I hope that uh, we all learn from this and, and we build our societies uh, more resilient to different types of crises. Well, you said that your country is has only 30 years of uh, independence, newly obtained independence. But in these 30 years, it has uh, traveled a huge road towards, uh, for, well, from being a former Soviet-occupied, uh, almost say republic, but <laughs> it was the official name, but it was obviously not a republic, like a Soviet, uh, Soviet-occupied uh, state entity, to one of the world leaders and references in digital government and digital development and digital digitalization in general. Uh, how was that possible? You were in the heart of this process. Uh, what's the secret of this Estonian wonder? Yes, uh, we did not like uh, the Soviet system at all. It had a lot of flaws. It uh, didn't have um, uh, most of the freedoms that uh, European citizens take for granted uh, to, in today's world, the freedom of speech, freedom of, uh, of economy, for example. And, and thus, uh, uh, 30 years ago, when Estonia got its independence back, uh, we wanted to get as far as possible from this model of society. And we wanted to become a new type of uh, Nordic country as, as soon as possible. Of course, we saw that you know, our neighbors, Finland and Sweden, were much, much richer uh, and, and uh, they had uh, uh, all sorts of developments in the society that we were almost obsessed uh, to catching up with. And uh, I think it is partly luck and partly uh, wise choices that uh, in the early 90s, when uh, we had to design the government and, and the country almost from a scratch. Uh, that was also the time when internet was becoming uh, a thing. So it's only logical that uh, when you build something, you use the uh, latest uh, building bricks for this. And, and, the, and the building brick, or very essential building brick for our society became uh, uh, internet, became uh, digital identity, uh, became uh, taking all the government systems uh, digital uh, by default. It didn't make sense to, to have huge paper files uh, uh, back in the 90s when uh, when internet was already enabling you much more interesting uh, solutions. So in a way, our big plus at that moment was that we didn't have any legacy systems or, or those systems, uh, the legacy systems that were used uh, by the Soviet regime, we didn't want to have anything to do with. So starting from scratch actually uh, was a good thing for us. So we, we could use state-of-the-art technology. Yes, and now you are, well, as I said, one definitely one of the references in the world. And uh, a lot of people, I think, are jealous today about what Estonian citizens can accomplish uh, being on lockdown or being limited in their... Uh, for example, travels within the country, uh, the interaction between uh, an Estonian citizen today and his or her government is not the same thing as, for example, for us here in France. Uh, you, 
I believe that there are lessons that Estonia can teach the world regarding the governance of tomorrow, the governance that is more prepared to different threats and to different situations and to managing different type of societal changes. Is it, is, what do you think about it? Yes, uh, this is correct. Uh, for uh, more than 18 years, uh, uh, the default uh, way of identifying yourself in Estonia has not been passport, but it has been the digital ID. So it means that every Estonian uh, uh, can have passport, but this is uh, optional. But you need to have your digital ID, which means that uh, you have a secure way of logging in to any government portal, any service provider portal, whatever it is, just think of it as, as a very safe way of identifying yourself uh, across the internet. And this, of course, um, enables uh, us to, to do anything online. Uh, paper documents uh, are used in Estonia only for very symbolic reasons. Uh, uh, if you want to uh, sign something with your pen, uh, you probably sign an autograph or, or guest book. If you want to sign a document, it's actually done uh, on the screen of your smartphone. At least in my case, most of the signatures I gave is, uh, is just entering my pin code to my smartphone, which creates uh, then encrypted uh, stamp on, on the document, or, or it can be any sort of file. And when I send it to to you or anyone else, this is uh, fully legally equal to my handwritten signature. And of course, I would argue that it's actually much safer because um, uh, handwritten signatures, uh, you know, I have been told that when I went to school in the second and third grade, uh, uh, my friends uh, could falsify their signature, their parents' signatures uh, to get away from trouble. Of course, uh, I never did it, of course, you never did it, but you know we can both understand that it is uh, fully possible to, to falsify never, your never did it either, but uh, exactly I can <laughs> imagine sorry. I can't imagine that it's possible. Uh, do you think it's do you think it's something that can be transposable to other countries? Do you think this digitalization of your identity and your interaction with the government is something that the world is going to be more interested in, something that can become a major trend globally? Or it's a local Estonian story, like uh, like the Nordic the Nordic progressive society is, but it does it would not work in the south of Europe or in Africa or or in different countries. I am actually hundred percent uh, certain that it will become a major thing, um, and why I'm so certain is that uh, uh, most of the world uh, uh, uses uh, already different. Um, means of uh, payment, for example, uh, in addition to cash. Uh, you know, only 60 years ago, cash uh, was the only way of, uh, of uh, paying to one another. And, and in order to do so, it was um, almost uh, compulsory to meet physically. Uh, now, the emerge of credit card has helped us uh, even not with, I would argue, with not, not the most safest uh, way possible, but still the emergence of credit cards has enabled to uh, make um, distant payments, which has uh, enabled all the e-commerce we are seeing in the world. Uh, there are, of course, a lot of uh, um, next layers also, uh, and we're talking about fintech, and, and we see that uh, 
countries around the world or people, more, more importantly, people around the world are very, very eager to use uh, uh, different kinds of electronic payments and, and e-commerce and, and all this. Now, uh, using uh, electronic ID um, on behalf of the uh, traditional passport is actually taking us uh, to even uh, further because uh, uh, giving access to your wallet is, is enough if you want to take a Uber or, or Bolt ride. But if you want to sign documents uh, with your business partner uh, in the next city or, or you know, in some different country, uh, then it's uh, extremely uh, uncomfortable to send paper documents or, or it's extremely unsafe to scan your signature or handwritten signature uh, because you know anybody could easily falsify it, and then it's, in my opinion, based too much on on blind trust. So I think um, both digital ID uh, and, and digital signature will be major things uh, across the world. And I think actually the current um, lockdown is speeding things up. Uh, it's actually quite comfortable, you know. It's it's. It's not comfortable for anyone to, to stay uh, at home uh, for, for six weeks, but for Estonians, it's, it's quite a bit more comfortable for, than for many other countries. And, and this is precisely because we have very wide access to all uh, public and private sector services online. And this is only possible when you have, uh, uh, when you have digital identification. It's interesting what you're saying, because I think it may be a part of the new reinvented relationship between the the the, the people and the state, uh, there is a lot of uh, articles and posts uh, appearing today from different thought leaders all over the world, uh, arguing basically in, in two separate directions uh, in this relationship. One saying that uh, this is the return of the big state, the fact that the states are now ordering this confinement and people are finding back the trust for the state. Uh, they are entrusting the state, even their own freedom of movement, because they understand that the state can protect them in a sanitary uh, or um, different types of uh, threatening situation. And the others uh, arguing the opposite, saying that now people will be more uh, defiant against the state. They will, be, they will lose this trust. Uh, we can see basically both uh, trends right now active in the US, for example, where you have people for example, in New York, who are being very respective to the lockdown measures and um, understand that the state is trying to help them uh, basically to survive. It's, we can put it that way. And at the same time, you see all these uh, riots almost, you know, people uh, manif manifesting against the lockdowns and saying, you're taking away our freedom. I think there is something here that the, the digitalizing the relationship between the state uh, and the and let's say in the people, does it help build this trust or on the, does it make this relationship better? Or maybe it's the other way around with all this, you know, private life, respect of uh, data, private data and things like this. Mm -hmm. what's, what's your outlook on this? Well, it depends uh, a lot uh, on how you design it. Uh, you can make uh, uh, your government uh, digital in so many ways. And, and in most cases, uh, actually, uh, countries don't do it uh, because they are afraid of um, of uh, the privacy issues and security issues. 
uh, I would argue that if you design it properly, it's both uh, more private and uh, more secure than the conventional uh, paper-based uh, information system. Uh, let's take a very like, important topic, especially today, health record. Uh, lots of uh, countries still have health records uh, on paper in hospital cellars, let's say, when there are archives. And uh, this is in many ways, of course, inconvenient because if the patient is taken to a hospital in, in another city where he doesn't usually go to hospital or where, where the doctor has never seen him, it's a quite serious chance that the doctor actually doesn't know anything about the patient, including the blood type, including the previous uh, symptoms, uh, nothing. Uh, whereas uh, in Estonia, we have a, a fully centralized uh, digital uh, health care, uh, meaning that all the case summaries, all the prescriptions, everything is in one central database. And whenever I go to a doctor, uh, he or she can, uh, can have a look at the previous case summaries or previous prescriptions if I, as a patient, uh, allow him to. And this if I is actually the perhaps most important part because um, without my permission, uh, no doctor and, and nobody else uh, is allowed to have a look at uh, my health data. And, and how I can make sure that uh, nobody violates that, there are two, two ways. First of all, if there is something sensitive about my health and I don't want anyone to know about this, I can with one click just close some individual case summary so that nobody else but me sees that, not even the doctor that has written it. And secondly, uh, there is a log. So uh, even if I uh, log in with my own digital ID to have a look at my health record, even this is logged uh, and I can check it anytime. Uh, uh, but uh, when, whenever a doctor has a look at my health data, I can also uh, uh, see that and I can you know, see it five years or 10 years after he has looked at it. And, and if there is like, let's say my eye doctor uh, taking uh, too much interest on my uh, uh, knee surgery uh, case summary, even that is, is a grounds to, to press charges because my eyes are are not where my knees are, and then these case summaries are not uh, related to each other. So, so point being, if you make it this way, that um, it is uh, securely designed, uh, you, and, and the privacy is taken care of, it is both uh, saving the government and the health insurance a huge amount of money, and it's a lot more efficient, of course, for both medicine and, uh, and patient. And, and secondly, uh, if you make it this way that uh, the patient or, or the citizen is in control of the data, I would say that it's much, uh, granted you much more privacy than the traditional paper files in, in some cupboard or, or, or cellar where you don't control uh, who sees them at all. That's very impressive, especially given that in France, we still have this big debate on what to do because we're on lockdown and people cannot go see their doctors so they cannot get prescription for new drugs. Uh, so, uh, because there's no such thing as digital prescription here. But yeah, this is actually a very important point that in Estonia already since 2008, all prescriptions, and I really mean all prescriptions are digital. 
And, and what, one good thing is that this was the first service that uh, became a digital cross-border service uh, by two go governments. So basically, if an Estonian citizen gets a digital prescription by an Estonian doctor, but uh, the Estonian happens to either be, live or, or be uh, on a vacation or, or, or on a working trip in Finland, uh, he can just go to any pharmacy and the digital prescription uh, can be accessed from that Finnish pharmacy as well. So, so we are very proud that actually digital services can work across border very well as well. In case the world is going towards what you said in the beginning, uh, more cooperation, which is not sure. You see Donald Trump today uh, announced that he will probably uh, close all immigration to the United States for, for an unknown amount of time. And there's a lot of populism growing in the world. It's, um, it's an interesting time in a sense where both proponents and opponents of international corporations have a lot of arguments now with Corona. Um, what, do, do you think you have, there are sufficient reasons to be optimist here, that there are more reasons to think that we are growing toward, towards bigger cooperation rather than going back to, uh, to what the French Minister uh, of uh, Foreign Affairs gave an interview yesterday to Le Monde. He said uh, that he was afraid that this this new world, uh, the post-Corona world, will be just like the old world but worse. What do you think? Yeah, I, I actually agree that uh, that we see a lot of worrying trends. Uh, we see populists uh, getting arguments that we should send uh, all foreigners away even though it actually doesn't make sense, but now, now they can uh, um, argue that everything uh, and blame everything on Corona. So, so that is by definition quite helpful for, for the populace. Uh, and, and also I see that the trade between countries, uh, globalization, uh, it's becoming uh, much more difficult uh, under lockdown. So uh, uh, we are actually moving backwards and, and uh, and this crisis is, is of course, a lot deeper than just the health crisis. And, and the health part, of course, is, is hugely important. But the overall effect uh, to our societies is, is perhaps even bigger. And, and this applies to uh, all sorts of things uh, from uh, trade, globalization, uh, uh, also freedom of speech in many cases, because uh, special... Uh, regimes uh, also and, and like fighting the crisis in in many cr countries has been a subject whether we should criticize the government at all and, and whether we should just give give them room to to fight the the uh, bad uh, virus so i think all those trends uh, that we have been witnessing uh, are worrying but uh, having said that um, i think uh, we will see uh, that uh, if we manage to work together, uh, then we will uh, get over this crisis uh, much sooner and much more effectively. And, and I'm sure that there is still a lot of um, uh, regions in the world, lots of um, countries uh, that uh, believe in, in uh, joint operations or, or working together. And, and uh, now when the initial shock perhaps is, is fading away or, or passing a bit, now it's the right time to focus on, on acting together and, and, uh, 
and perhaps correcting some of the mistakes that we did in the very first phases of the of the uh, outbreak of this virus. But there's also another trend that I think is uh, unfortunately accelerating is the, the the problem of inequality that we were talking a lot about it since the three years, especially since well in France since Dumas Piketty published his uh, his uh, works. Um, it is interesting to see that, the, for example, the digitalization that we were talking about, does it only work in rich countries? Is it possible to make uh, these solutions work, for example, in poor countries in Africa or in Asia? Because to put all that in place, you need a lot of infrastructure, right? You need, to, you need servers, you need electricity, you need all global access to internet, you need people educated enough so they can use these systems. Uh, and it, it's not it's not a secret that there is a lot of inequality regarding that uh, in the world. Is it helpful uh, to digitalize these countries, and does it help because they need infrastructure, or is it or is it something that's too complicated for them to strive for for today? Especially in the context where now it's difficult. Maybe a lot of people will be pushed back to poverty in, in, in different regions. There they are there are analysis that are quite pessimistic regarding that. Uh, Estonia today is almost uh, in the group of rich countries, or officially we are in the group of rich countries, but you know we're still uh, among the last ones to to enter that. Uh, even though we have gone a long, long way, and and we certainly were not the rich country uh, in the 90s when we started uh, digitalizing. And uh, actually, I think that uh, the poor countries uh, win the most uh, from digitalization because uh, uh, it is making the uh, country more efficient. Uh, it's making uh, it more prone to uh, economic growth. Uh, so our experience in Estonia is that it has actually helped us to, to catch up with our uh, much richer uh, Nordic neighbors. And, um, and today is also uh, much, much better than the 90s in respect of access to computing devices. Uh, in the 90s, uh, uh, computers were still kind of expensive, uh, whereas today, uh, lots of people uh, globally have access to smartphones. And smartphone is uh, today, uh, what I would say, the most logical access point to, uh, to communicate with uh, not only the taxi apps or, or Airbnb and Booking.com, but also uh, communicating with, uh, with your government. And uh, all the technology is, uh, is quite easy to implement to any major uh, smartphone platform. So I think uh, the standing point of, uh, of many relatively poor countries is actually excellent to digitize uh, very fast, and, and uh, I believe that those countries who uh, understand it uh, sooner, they will be the ones that uh, win a lot from it. But of course, uh, eventually, I hope that um, at all of the uh, countries in the world uh, have digital identity, because the real uh, boost in, in uh, productivity and, and, um, and the possibilities comes when uh, when this is uh, international standards and, and you can do it uh, across borders not only regionally but, but globally it's very interesting so just to wrap it up uh for you the state of the world 
of tomorrow is uh, is still something you can be optimistic about. Like you you think it's a, it's a right time to be optimistic today, despite everything that's going on, or we should be careful and more or less realist in our assumptions. Is it something positive for you to be optimist today? Well, I, I think we are experiencing. Um two opposite vectors. Uh, one very, in my opinion, very negative vector is uh, this uh, protectionism and, and anti-globalism, anti uh, um, just, you know, everybody for, for himself. Uh, uh, but the, the positive thing is that the quite evident um, uh, digital uh, uh, revolution uh, has become even more uh, uh, evident that there is a need for it. And, and this is uh, not only digital identity and digital signature, not only a government and, and uh, public, private sector uh, uh, information bases, but it's also sectors like uh, autonomous driving or, or uh, artificial intelligence uh, solving uh, problems. I think uh, also uh, once we have have been able to properly gather the information uh, about all this uh, uh, COVID uh, outbreak. Uh, uh, there is a lot of um, things that we can analyze also using uh, uh, the latest uh, machine learning uh, algorithms and, and to properly uh, understand what happened and how to prevent it in the future. So I think you know what this lockdown has uh, has definitely showed us, or, or the contactless world has definitely showed us, is uh, uh, we should uh, embarrass. Uh, we should embrace the uh, digital uh, development uh, even faster and and and, uh, and take it even more seriously than than we did before. Thanks a lot, Tavi. It was a great a great talking to you. Great discussion. Thanks. Thank you very much. Again. Thank you for listening to our first State of the World podcast. If you want to stay informed about our further publications, including articles, podcasts, and interviews, go to stateoftheworld.info and subscribe to our newsletter. You will also receive information about our upcoming online and offline events. Thank you so much for listening and see you soon at State of the World.